Welcome to the Saturday Blitz Podcast with your tailgater crew, John Mitchell and Zach Bogalki. Welcome back to the Saturday Blitz Podcast again, everybody, for this week's episode. I'm Zach Bogalki, here as always with John Mitchell. This week we're going to be talking about week six games, our best wins, our worst losses, uh, some surprises that we saw, some players that stood out. In the second segment, we'll be doing our look at week seven against the spread, looking at five key games coming up in week seven action. And in our final segment, we're going to be offering our upset picks, our locks of the week, offering a new look at uh, some bonehead calls from week six, and then talking about some of our food and drink we want to be eating and drinking coming up this weekend. How's it going this week, John? Good to see you again. Yeah, appreciate it. It's, it's going really well. Uh, excited to be back, as always, talking about uh, this this sport with you. Certainly. We got a lot to talk about. It was a it was a crazy week six that led to a lot of twists and turns and some some movement in the polls. So starting off there, what was the best win you saw of a wild weekend? You know, it, it all started on, on Friday night for me with Cincinnati um, hosting Central Florida and finally getting over that uh, that night's hump that they've been you know, stuck on the last few years. You know, Luke Fickle's obviously done a really good job in the Queen City and finally has the team that has finally been able to overtake UCF in the AAC, pulling out a, a 27-24 victory over the Knights on Friday night, uh, ending Central Florida's 18 or 19-game winning streak in the conference uh, as the same. And then pulling out just like the greatest tweet of the weekend with the Disney uh, you hate to see it, which was just as good of um, a social media presence as I've seen from any team this year so far. So just a huge win for Luke Fickle, a huge win for the Bearcats. Um, it kind of looked like they might be out of the group of five race a couple weeks ago when they got hammered by Ohio State. But I think that speaks more to the relative strength of the Buckeyes than it does the weakness of the Bearcats. Um, and obviously Cincinnati's now in a really good spot in the American race right now. And that to me was the, the best win of the weekend. You know, they kind of were able to hang on there at the end for, from a furious UCF rally in the fourth quarter to be able to pull out just a, a massive win for the program, the signature win that Fickle's been looking for um, at Cincinnati. Undoubtedly. Yeah, I'll talk more about this game once we get to the third segment and I look at my blunder of the week, Um, but that was definitely a great win for the Bearcats. Um, Just about the only thing that wasn't winning was the fact that they didn't go with the all-black field. I really wish they had done that. It was such a beautiful, talking about beautiful social media presence, that was a really great sell, and I just wish they would have followed through with it because that field would have looked awesome yeah the one wide end zone didn't make a whole lot of sense to be honest because it it really looked good other than that didn't really place but certainly a good idea got the fans obviously really excited a great home crowd uh at nippert stadium on friday night in cincinnati pulling out one of the biggest wins that they've had in a long time definitely i actually stayed in the american athletic conference for my best win of the week um, this was the three-overtime thriller at Gerald J. Ford Stadium in Dallas as SMU kept themselves in the polls for a second straight week with that thrilling comeback against Tulsa. Uh, you know, Tulsa looked just absolutely golden. The Golden Hurricanes looked incredible in the first three quarters of play. But unfortunately, football games don't only last 45 minutes for them. You know, they had that that score on the kickoff blunder. It it, it just seemed that nothing was going SMU's way for those those first three quarters. Tulsa was up 30 to nine heading into the fourth. And then it's like the switch flipped and uh, SMU just started started picking up first downs score three touchdowns there in that in that final frame uh right down to Xavier Jones four yard run on fourth and two to cap uh the the comeback drive to beat all comeback drives one minute two seconds left in regulation and uh 
you know, it, it, once they get to overtime as well, the Golden Hurricanes seem to forget how to kick the football <laughs> and uh, miss two field goals on two straight drives there in the second and third overtime. And then what a way to end the game. James Prochet catching that, that pass from Shane Bouchelle there, uh, you know, initially ruled incomplete but he catches it off of Brandon Johnson as both of them are falling into the end zone, um, falling out of bounds, but he man- Prochet manages to tap his foot, have the presence of mind to do that in bounds. And it was a weird way to end the game, I must say. I don't know that I've ever seen an overtime game ended on a replay that reversed an incompletion into a touchdown. So all around, that game for... For pure entertainment value, uh, no no other game this week could beat it dollar for dollar, I would say. Yeah, and on the opposite side of that, you got to feel for Tulsa, you know, having that huge lead and blowing in the fourth quarter. Philip Montgomery's team looks really improved from the last couple of years after winning five games over the last two seasons, coming off that 10-win year in 2016. But Tulsa really does look like a much-improved football team. You know, you look at their three losses so far. They've come against Michigan State, Oklahoma State, and SMU. They've got a, an impressive win uh, over Wyoming on the resume. It really looks like the Golden Hurricanes are a really better team this season, and they had a shot to get their second straight quality win and to watch that kind of go up in flames uh, as SMU started um, – 6-0 and for the first time since 1982. You know, the Pony Express is back, it looks like, um, in Fort Worth. So really, really impressive victory for SMU. But your heart kind of goes out for Tulsa after having that game seemingly in the bag and then kind of blowing it there in the fourth quarter. Definitely one of the better games of the weekend. Yeah, it was totally locked down. And then, and then it wasn't. Um, on that note, that was definitely a bad loss for SMU. Uh, but what did you see as the absolute bar none worst loss of the weekend? Man, you know, at the beginning of the year, we were talking about, we thought Manny Diaz and Miami would really be at least competitive again this season and really compete um, in the ACC, at least in, at least in the coastal division. Right. But then the, the Hurricanes just, again, looking like a paper team at this point, you know, playing a, a Virginia Tech squad at home that's looked really bad, like putrid, to be honest, coming off a, a five-touchdown loss to Duke. Their two wins on the season coming into this game, coming against Old Dominion and Furman. And then for Miami to fall behind um, 28 to nothing uh, just six minutes into the second quarter, and then, you know, fighting back like they did, tying the game before ultimately losing at the end. But really, it's just disappointing for a Miami team that really had a lot of potential and a lot of expectations coming into the season to drop a home game against, you know, honestly, one of the worst Virginia Tech teams we've seen in many years, to be honest. They just aren't your typical, they're not your father's Hokies this season, right? They're just not on that level uh, and a game Miami really couldn't afford to lose and a game that really swings things in terms of bowl eligibility more towards, towards Virginia Tech because Miami's got a tough schedule still to go. They still got to play Virginia. They still have to go to Pittsburgh. They still have to go to Florida State uh, and Duke. So, you know, it could be tough. We're talking about a Miami team that a lot of people were projecting to end up in the Orange Bowl this year as the number two team in the ACC with Clemson in the playoff. And now we're honestly wondering if the Hurricanes are even going to win six games to make a bowl. So I think that was really disappointing, obviously. A really rough start, four turnovers in the, fir- in the first quarter. Uh, Jaron Williams threw three interceptions. Nikosi Perry came in and really performed well. So it looks like it's probably his job going forward. And Coral Gables was still just a really disappointing outcome for Miami with so many uh, so much expectations coming into the season. Yeah, it's been a weird weird turn of events for that team from uh, the week zero opener against Florida when honestly both of those teams looked completely well matched in awfulness and uh, what what a what a turn of directions for those two teams after that opener you know Florida has been looking great Miami has looked anything but since then. 
so yeah, I, I completely agree. That was a really bad loss, and this isn't a game I'm necessarily planning on talking about, but the fact that Miami is only a one-point underdog against a ranked Virginia team has me really curious about what Vegas still sees in them at this point of the season, because... Obviously, right. there's something there, and the Sharps always seem to get something right that I, I'm completely flummoxed about, but yeah, that's a weird one for me. Yeah, not to spoil later on the podcast, but I'll be speaking about that game pretty soon. <laughs> Excellent. Yeah, I'll leave it at that then, uh, and move on to my own worst loss, which took place late at night. It was another Pac-12 after dark thriller that absolutely killed my top 25 projections after they came out. Uh, Stanford looked nothing like Stanford that we know coming into this, you know, into this game. They were two and three under 500 as they got ready to play Washington. Uh, The Huskies were still in the college football playoff discussion to start that game. But Stanford has seemed to have Washington's number over the past decade and a half, really. They've won 10 of the past 14 heading into this game at the farm. Now it's 11 of 15 because Stanford had their way with the Huskies. Uh, Davis Mills coming in again in relief of the injured KJ Costello looked like that job maybe very well should just be his at this point. Um, He was able to do whatever he wanted with that team, and I think it spoke as much to the fact that Washington, for as good as they are on the back end with their secondary, seems to have no ability to get push at the line of scrimmage. Uh, Cameron Scarlett looked amazing against them, and uh, Mills was able to, to carve them up all over the field, finding open receiver after open receiver, and... You know, it it was a costly loss for Washington because they fell from number 15 in the AP top 25 completely out of the poll. And and the same thing happened in the coaches pull from their spot at number 16. So, you know, staying up late on Saturday, it can be rough if you're not on the West Coast. But these past few weeks with what the Pac-12 has done to itself, it's well worth your time staying up for those games. Yeah, Pac-12 after dark's been pretty unkind to Chris Peterson and his Huskies so far. A second second loss in that kind of time this season. I don't know if there's been a more disappointing team in college football this season than Washington with all the expectations the Huskies had coming in. Uh, so not just being a Pac-12 and Rose Bowl, Rose Bowl contender, but being a legitimate playoff contender. We talked about in the preseason if, you know, Jacob Eason could be uh, the next step in the quarterback evolution and really improve upon what Jacob Eason was able to do in Seattle, that the Huskies had a really good shot at representing the Pac-12 in the playoff for the first time since 2015. But now you're looking at a Huskies team that's 4-2 and two and has two conference losses already. So now not only is the playoff out of uh, out of the conversation, but the Rose Bowl seems further and further out of sight. Um, the thing with the Pac-12, it just feels like a league that doesn't have an elite football team, but a lot of quality teams from the very top to even close to the very bottom. A, a league that really could, you know, pillage itself uh, from the top and really be, you end up with a two or three loss Pac-12 champion this year, I think, because the league is so competitive from the top to the bottom. I don't think there's a team in the league that you know, would measure up to the top four or five teams in the country this year, but might be the most fascinating race in all of college football when you look at how many teams really are still alive and have a shot at the at making it to Pasadena. Yeah, definitely. And I, I this is the Homer in me talking, but I don't completely want to write off the Ducks yet. They did manage to hold on against a tough Cal defense. And, uh, you know, We've seen uh, the majority of teams come into the college football playoff with one loss. Uh, So, you know, only six times in the past five years, so six out of 20 have been uh, undefeated teams heading into that playoff. So they do have a legitimate shot there uh, to become one of the, you know, the 15th one-loss team to get into that field, but... Obviously, Auburn losing to Florida kind of hurts that in terms of strength of schedule and everything else that comes up. So 
I agree with you. The Pac-12 has just been absolutely thrilling. It's been fascinating week over week, and uh, unless it's Oregon running the table, I don't think anybody else does have a shot just based on where they're sitting in the polls at this point. Yeah, I mean, I think that's fair. Oregon's definitely the only team that feels like they still have a legit shot at potentially making a run at the playoff. But like you said, Auburn's loss kind of does hurt that. And honestly, I wonder how strong the Ducks are, right? They've kind of been inconsistent so far this year. They looked really good against Nevada. Uh, but other than that, it's you still kind of the jury's still out on whether Oregon is as good as we kind of thought in the preseason. Um, they struggled a bit against Cal. Like you said, though, Cal does have one of the better defenses in the country, but also had no offense to speak of um, after Chase Garbers got hurt and they had to turn to Devin Monster. So uh, obviously there's still a lot of tough games on Oregon's schedule, but they definitely represent the Pac-12's best hope of potentially moving forward and getting in. But I wonder, I do think with what the national narrative is on the Pac-12, that it would take some chaos to get Oregon back in the conversation because I think they'd be on the second tier of one-loss teams trying to get in. See, I think what they needed most was for Washington to keep winning so that they both showed up at their game later this month with a pair of one-loss teams ranked somewhere between number 11 and number 14. And, uh, you know, that really would have served as an elimination game, and both those teams would have been alive with a quality win over the other. Um, So, yeah, I I, I think it is an uphill slog. And that's certainly not something that's been surprising the way the Pac-12 has been treated the past few years by the selection committee. But talking about surprises, just to seg us right into that part... Um, what was the biggest surprise you saw in week six? I kind of went off the radar with this pick um, and went to the Sun Belt, actually, uh, which I know will excite you, Zach, being a group of five guy like you are. But it was Georgia State beating Arkansas State by two touchdowns on Saturday. You know, Georgia State obviously opened the season by going to Neyland Stadium and and shocking Tennessee and shocking the country, to be honest, with, and especially you and I who talked about we thought Tennessee would really be improved this year. Uh, But then after that, they kind of looked like Georgia State again, right? They struggled to beat Furman. They got hammered by Western Michigan on the road. They lost on the road to a a pretty mediocre to bad Texas State team. But they bounced back against an Arkansas State team that really had their eyes on a potential Sun Belt title and just rolled over the Red Wolves 52-38 to on Saturday, which was really the biggest surprise to me in terms of just looking at scores and stuff of the games on Saturday that Georgia State was able to jump out to a 21 to nothing lead hang on and really earn a huge victory for their Sun Belt and their bowl hopes uh, at this point in the season honestly because you know the the Panthers are really right there uh, with their losses coming um, one of their losses coming out of conference and the other one coming in conference obviously really staying alive in the Sun Belt race so it's a very impressive win for Georgia State, but also quite surprising in terms of what I thought Arkansas State was and what I thought Georgia State was after the last couple of weeks. Yeah, definitely it was looking at that game ahead of the week and figured it would be a reverse scoreline, you know, at the very least. So hats off to the Panthers. That was a, a great performance. Um, who knows what's happening with the Red Wolves this year? Um but we can say that with a lot of teams, the way that things have been going. And, um, you know, you mentioned it with the Docs, but we can say it with at least 70 programs around the FBS that just haven't had that consistency from week to week. Um, and then, you know, you could probably put 40 more of those teams as, like, consistently bad. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> you know, then the, the jury's out on the last, you know, 15 or so um but yeah it's and speaking of that consistency that's that's where I went for my biggest surprise Oklahoma State always seems to have one bungle a season um you know we've seen it when they've been right there in the thick of the national conversation and drop a game to Iowa State we've seen it uh on a lot of different levels. And this week it was Texas tech that had their, their way with the, the Cowboys, Um, you know, and Oklahoma state came into this game looking so good. They'd taken Texas to the wire. 
They knocked Kansas State out of the rankings to climb up themselves. Um, and on the other hand, Texas Tech looked terrible in their first two contests against Power 5 competition. They put up only 14 points against Arizona. The following week, they put up 16 points against Oklahoma. And if you had to guess which team would be coming out on top on this in this game, it would have to have been the Cowboys. But, uh, it, you know, especially because Alan Bowman was still out, you know, injured and Jet Duffy came in and just kind of blew away any narrative that we thought we knew about this game ahead of time. Threw for 424 yards and four touchdowns and made that air raid offense look just as good as it always has in Lubbock. Um, and, uh, you know, the defense came up huge as well. Spencer Sanders turns over the ball five times, throws three picks, fumbles it a couple more times, and... Uh, you know, Oklahoma State falls out of the rankings with that. Texas Tech, um, you know, gets their, their chance to play spoiler again. And the Big 12 lost the chance to have another good team sitting there in the rankings alongside Oklahoma and Texas. And who else do you put in there? I mean, at this point, it's really got to be a two-horse race in that league. Uh, Baylor, I guess, but... Right. Yeah, you know, honestly, I think it speaks a lot of what Texas Tech has the potential to be. I think Matt Wells has finally figured it out with Jet Duffy at quarterback. Uh, obviously, Alan Bowman's been hurt, but I think even if he's healthy, I think he's figured out that Jeff Duffy gives him the best shot at winning. Um, I was really impressed with his performance. He's got all the talent in the world. His struggle the last couple of years has been taking care of the football, not fumbling, not throwing interceptions. But when he's on, he's really good as a dual threat kind of guy, the guy who can beat you with his arm or his legs. Very impressive win. Gets Texas Tech right back in the conversation for a bowl bid, which would be huge in Matt Wells' first season in Lubbock. Undoubtedly. Well, you know, we talked about Doffy as a great player this week. Who did you hand out game balls to, John, starting with the offensive game ball? Yeah, Duffy was definitely under consideration, but the guy I went with was uh, another Big 12 quarterback, and it was Brock Purdy at Iowa State, who really dominated a Gary Patterson coach TCU defense. So you don't really see that often. Usually uh, the Horned Frogs are really well coached on that side of the ball, really uh, hold their own. But Purdy was uh, – I know a lot of people have seen the the viral video of his little stutter step juking the TCU defender and scoring, but – Overall, Purdy throwing for 247 yards, uh, rushing for 102 more, and ended up with four total touchdowns as Iowa State racked up 49 points and a blowout win over TCU. So I was really impressed uh, with the sophomore quarterback and Ames really putting together a, a really strong performance. Um, if he can keep that up, then Iowa State's still very much in the thick of the Big 12 race this season. You know, Purdy was great. And I definitely had him on my short list as well. But I had to give my game ball to Jonathan Taylor, uh, the running back from Wisconsin. This is not just a homer pick for somebody who grew up a Badgers fan. Taylor just stood out uh, among all teams across the country. Looked really great in scoring five total touchdowns. Uh, he had 19 carries for 186 yards, and then he added on three receptions for 29 yards in his fifth touchdown. He's really worked on, you know, catching the ball out of the backfield more this season, and it showed in this game. Um, but what really impressed me most is he just passed Melvin Gordon for third all-time on the Wisconsin rushing list, and he's only 225 yards behind Monty Ball now. Probably not going to catch Ron Dane considering he's still 2,000 yards behind him. You know, unless he decides to come back for his senior season, I don't think that's going to happen. And I don't think he's coming back for his senior season after looking as good as he has. But what a, what a lights-out performance by Taylor, who's really making a push to have a running back in Manhattan for the Heisman ceremony this year. On the other side of the ball, I stayed in the Big Ten um, and, you know, stayed actually quite close to home, uh, just a couple miles down the road from me. I was hearing the stadium go off on homecoming day here in State College, 
And a big reason why it was going off was that defensive line that just kept teeing off on a Purdue team that was without Elijah Sindelar and uh, forced to play Jack Plummer at quarterback. And the offensive line did him no favors. Um, And I think probably the biggest standout on that defensive line was Shaka Tony for me. Um, You know, Plummer was harassed all day. He was sacked 10 times, and three of those were Tony's. Uh, He also had four tackles and just was a disruptive force getting through the line again and again and again. That's a great pick. He was definitely disruptive. I went with another guy who had... um, multiple sacks in a game. One of the most impressive performances of the season for me so far was Texas Tech linebacker Jordan Brooks um, in their 45-35 win over Oklahoma State. Uh, Texas Tech obviously not really known for their defensive acumen, but the Red Raiders certainly look much improved under Matt Wells on that side of the ball than they ever looked under Cliff Kingsbury. Um, And Brooks was uh, a huge played a huge role was a missile in the backfield, just constantly harassing Spencer Sanders, constantly making plays against Chubba Herbert, Chubba Hubbard in the backfield for the for the pokes. And Brooks finished with 19 tackles, eight of which were solo. He had four tackles for loss and three sacks. Uh, he was incredible in that game. Made play after play um, to keep Texas Tech ahead. Um, Really very impressive performance by the Red Raiders defense as a whole. Oklahoma State scored a couple touchdowns in the fourth quarter that, you know, put their point total a lot higher. But Texas Tech's defense really came up big in big spots, stopping that two-point conversion in the fourth quarter. And, of course, it was Jordan Brooks making the play to keep it a two-possession game instead of one. So if Texas Tech's defense can keep playing at that level, and if Jet Duffy can keep playing at that level like quarterback, then Texas Tech's going to be a lot better team than a lot of people thought in the preseason. And, and Jordan Brooks is a huge reason why, as they're kind of alpha on the defensive side of the ball. Yeah, definitely gives them a huge ceiling. That's a great pick. On that note, everybody, we're going to take our first quick break here. When we come back, we're going to talk about Week 7 against the spread. We'll see you on the other side. Stay tuned. Welcome back, everybody, after the break. We're here talking Week 7 action against the spread now. And we have a lot of huge games coming up in Week 7. It's felt like, you know, the past couple weeks have had um, some marquee matchups, but this week just feels like it's absolutely loaded from start to finish with them. So, first game we're going to look at this week is a showdown of top 12 teams in the Big 12. Uh, Number 6, Oklahoma, heads to Dallas to face number 11, Texas, at the Cotton Bowl. And uh, Texas comes in as a 10.5 point underdog, even though each of the last five Red River shootouts have been decided by a touchdown or less. Do you think this is the year that Oklahoma finally pulls out a big win in this series? You know, it's very interesting because Texas, I'm still not sure how good Texas is this year. You know, uh, you're talking about a team that their one marquee game they lost at home to LSU, but obviously LSU has looked like one of the top five or six teams in the country so far this year. But if you look at the Longhorn schedule, you're looking at close wins over Oklahoma State. They beat West Virginia on the road last week, but if you look at Bill Connolly's SP Plus ratings, uh, the Longhorns were only if you looked at all the stats and the outcomes and stuff, we're projected to win 47% of the time with those similar outcomes. So that was pretty interesting for me. And Oklahoma, on the other hand, has looked pretty dominant. Uh, their defense looks better than we've seen most Sooners uh, defenses look in the last few years with Alex Grinch coming over from Columbus to take over the Oklahoma defense in Norman. I do actually think this might be the year that the Sooners – uh, kind of dominate this rivalry game. I think Jalen Hurts is going to be up for the task. The last time he had an opportunity in this kind of a big rivalry game, he really struggled in the Iron Bowl against Auburn in 2017 when Auburn pulled out the win. I think this is going to feel a little bit personal for him um, the, on the big stage. He's obviously played in a lot of big games in his career with the Crimson Tide, playing in a couple college football playoff games. Uh, playing in SEC championship games, in the Iron Bowl, stuff like that. I think he has a really big game. I think Oklahoma's defense makes a statement. I think it's close for a while, but I think it's a two-touchdown victory for the Sooners. 
You know, I think that's really quite possible. Um, at the same time, just these rivalry games always seem to just give that underdog that little bit of an edge. And uh, especially playing at the Cotton Bowl, which really needs to have more games in a given season. I, I think that stadium is just too damn cool to be left that dormant. Um, bring back the Cotton Bowl to the Cotton Bowl. That's going to be my lobby over the next couple of years, I think. <laughs> um, but yeah, you know, I think what really kind of gives me pause is Oklahoma started out cold against Kansas last week before they finally figured it out and got things going. And, you know, through that first half, Kansas was able to push the ball on the Sooners. Uh, the defense really stiffened in the second half, but... I think Texas has has a deep enough team to, to start exploiting that in a way that uh, Kansas just couldn't. They were relying way too heavily on Puka Williams to, uh, you know, make the difference. And he wasn't able to do it by himself. Texas won't need just one guy to do it by himself to keep themselves in this. Um, so I think Oklahoma wins this game. I, I do, but... I think it's probably like 38-28, 38-31, something around there. 7-10 to 10 point victory, which puts them just underneath that spread. Um, if this slides down to like 9.5 by game time, I'd be more inclined to give it to Oklahoma. But that, you know, that ability to push up to 10 points and still have Texas cover has me seeing the Longhorns do just that. Yeah, you know, the 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 book is kind of thrown out when you get into rivalry games. Like, you can look at stats and make your projections as much as possible. You never really know what's going to happen in these games. I think a lot of people were surprised when Texas won the Red River rivalry last year. I think a lot of people have probably forgotten the fact that the Longhorns pulled out that win last year when you look at them having the rematch in the Big 12 championship game. This could very well be a precursor to the second showing between Oklahoma and Texas for the second year in a row when they could potentially face off again in the Big 12 title game. Yeah, certainly. Um, so, yeah, I think it's going to be close. I really do. Um, but if they win by two touchdowns, I certainly would not be surprised to see that from Oklahoma. They have a good enough team to make that happen. Um, they're just also playing a, a, a decent rival. So, Moving on to another rivalry that'll be happening on Saturday. USC heads to South Bend to face number nine, Notre Dame. Uh, the Fighting Irish are an 11 and a half point favorite. And um, for me, this really comes down to a, a, a Jekyll and Hyde situation with the Trojans, where they have just looked absolutely lights out at home and then seem to not be able to take that with them on the road. I don't know if it doesn't fit into the trunks that they're carrying with them or what, but that mojo just stays there in Los Angeles. Um, do you think this is the week that USC could actually make some waves away from California? You know, they've got to take care of the football um, in South Bend. I think that's the biggest thing. And their two losses this season, they've thrown six interceptions in those two games. Um, two games they could have been could have easily gone the other direction. They were competitive against Washington for a while, despite the turnovers. Uh, obviously, we're right there against BYU a few weeks prior. So it all comes down to, can USC take care of the football against an aggressive um, and really good Notre Dame defense on the road? Um, I do think USC will play better this week. Uh, I think they're they're coming off the, the bye week, having the rest. I think um, they'll take care of the football better. I don't think that's enough to get them over the top against the Irish. I think Notre Dame's the better team uh, when you look top to bottom. I've been very impressed uh, with the Notre Dame front seven in particular uh, with Julian Aquara and um, everyone else up front. I really do think Notre Dame will get some pressure on the USC quarterback and really make it difficult. So I think Notre Dame wins, but I think 11 might be too much. I think this is, again, a rivalry game where you can kind of throw the book out uh, about what happens. I think the I think the Trojans are right there, but I think USC ends up winning probably by getting a, a, a two-possession win at the end, something along the lines of 34-24 probably makes sense to me. 
Uh, let's just back that up. USC or Notre Dame winning this game? Notre Dame, definitely Notre Dame. Okay. Yeah, I think you might have said USC there, so I just wanted oh, to make sure I'm we sorry. had that right. <laughs> no, yeah, I think USC keeps it close, but I think Notre Dame's the better team overall and ends up kind of pulling away in the fourth quarter to pull out a two-possession win. Got it. CC, USC at least covering that. Excellent. Yes. Um, you know, I'm more skeptical. Like I said, USC has not been able to get it done on the road. Um, you're absolutely right. They've kept it closer. Um, but Notre Dame has a top 15 scoring offense and a top 15 scoring defense. And I think, uh, you know, I'm with you. I think Notre Dame does win this game. It'll be the first time that the Irish have won three straight in this series, uh, since the run from 1999 to 2001. So, you know, USC has had their number a lot more in recent years, but I honestly see Notre Dame rolling to to take the Golden Shillelagh. Uh, I see it being something like 34-17, 38-17. Maybe this will come back to bite me in the ass next week, but... <laughs> You know, I'm gonna I'm gonna make I'm gonna pull the trigger there and make that call with them. I, I just think USC with how much flux there's been around that program, I think you know, they have good week, bad week, and I think this is bad week coming up for them. It certainly could be. I think Notre Dame's definitely the better team overall, but I think again, with a rivalry game, I think USC's gonna come to play for their coach and really have a shot in this game. But I definitely think Notre Dame wins, obviously. I don't think it's gonna be a game that comes down to the final possession or anything like that. But I think eleven gives you enough um freedom to kind of project a, a closer than expected win. Totally with you there. Well, for the third game, let's head a little bit closer to home for you and another giant spread. Uh, Top-ranked Alabama heads to College Station this weekend to take on the 24th-ranked Aggies. Um, The Crimson Tide have outscored their first five opponents by an average of 37 points per game, averaging over 51 points a game and holding teams to 17. No, 14. Sorry about that. Um, I can do math, everybody. (laughs) Um, but yeah, you know, Tua Tagovailoa has looked incredible. He leads the nation with 23 passing touchdowns, despite the fact that he only seems to play two and a half quarters each week. And yeah, I, I don't, you know, this game has had some wacky moments in recent history since Texas A&M came over to the SEC. But, you know, I'm looking at that spread at 17 and a half. We've talked about a couple of really big spreads, but is that spread even big enough in this case, John? You know, it, it's interesting. Last year, Texas A&M covered the spread uh, with a late touchdown drive when the game was long since decided. So you never know what Jimbo Fisher, he's going to keep playing until the final whistle. It feels like he might have something in his contract that says if he covers enough spread, he gets an extra couple million dollars on that $75 million contract he signed to go to Texas A&M. I just haven't been impressed with the Aggies so far this year, Zach. Like, since the opening kind of the season started, really, you know, they lost by a couple touchdowns at Clemson. But, again, that was another one of those games where Fisher really pushed at the end in a game that was a three-touchdown deficit for most of the way and got that late touchdown to pull it within two scores. Um, They lost at home to, uh, to Auburn. They struggled to beat Arkansas at a neutral site. My expectation is... Alabama's had a week off. They've heard all the the talk about how their defense has struggled so far this year and struggling relative, I guess, to everything else because, like you said, they're only giving up about 14 points a game so far. So a lot of teams in the country would take that struggle every day of the week. Um, I think, honestly, the big thing is going to be Alabama's passing offense again. Um, I think Texas A&M has a good secondary, but I think the – this might be one of the best wide receiver corps in the history of college football when you look at it. When we look back at this 10 years from now, it's going to be amazing to think that guys like Jerry Judy, Henry Ruggs, and Devontae Smith played on the same football team. 
with a quarterback like Tua Tungavailoa who can spread the ball around like he can. So depending on what Jimbo Fisher does at the end, I see a three-touchdown win for Alabama, something along the lines of 45-24 in favor of the Crimson Tide, even on the road. Uh, I think it's kind of a statement game for Alabama, uh, a two weeks preparation for Nick Saban and Pete Golding on defense to kind of prepare for Kellen Mond's ability to to make plays with both his arms and legs. And I think Alabama pulls out a, a three touchdown win over the Aggies in College Station. I think that's that, that's right about where I have this as well. I think, you know, you could even knock it up a few points. Uh, Mon just isn't about to have a Johnny football moment. I don't see that sort of thing happening. And so, yeah, I'm looking at it like 41-14, possibly 41-17 in favor of the Tide. I, I think they're just going to keep on rolling. Moving out to Big Ten country for our fourth game, we have a matchup of top 20 teams with Penn State going out to Iowa City to face the Hawkeyes. Nittany Lions are at number 10 now, uh, continuing to make their surge up the polls as they become the best challenger to Ohio State in the Big Ten East. And Iowa took a blow last weekend going to Minnesota. Took a blow last weekend going to Michigan and looking abysmal at the big house. Um, But it only dropped them a few spots to number 17 in the polls. So we have another really good ranked matchup of Big Ten teams here. Uh, Penn State's favored by four points at this point. Do you think uh, they cover this spread? When you look at it, you got two teams who have been really, really strong defensively so far this year. Both teams, uh, you got Iowa giving up about nine points per game, Penn State giving up about seven. But the difference has been the offenses, right? Penn State's got an offense that's putting up 47 points per game, uh, and Iowa's got an offense putting up about 27 points per game. Uh, it's hard not to be impressed with how Penn State's looked this year. They've been a lot better than I think a lot of people kind of expected after losing Trace McSorley at quarterback, Miles Sanders in the backfield. The Nittany Lions have looked really good, particularly the last two weeks rolling over Maryland and Purdue in conference. Um, I, you know, I will had a really big opportunity last week to prove themselves as legitimate and remain as three whole points against Michigan. And obviously the Wolverines have a really good defense as well, but I wonder if Nate Stanley and the, and the, Iowa offense can put up enough points to kind of keep this competitive against Penn State, even at home. And obviously the home field advantage for the Hawkeyes is really great. Obviously they have um, a really great home uh, crowd. Uh, They've put off a bunch of victories on their home field against higher ranked teams over the years, as we've seen. Uh, But I think Penn State's legit. I really do. I think the Nittany Lions have a shot to really push Ohio State in the Big Ten this year. Um, and I think Penn State makes another state. I've been really impressed with Sean Clifford so far this year in his first season as the starter. Um, he's thrown for 1,400 yards, uh, 12 touchdowns, only a couple interceptions so far. Um, K.J. Hamler has been fantastic as a receiver for Penn State so far. Um, I think Penn State, in, in what's probably a low-scoring kind of game, but I think four-and-a-half or four-four-and-a-half, depending on which book you're looking at, is enough to make me feel like Penn State probably gets the win. I'm thinking something along the lines of 24-17 in favor of the Nittany Lions. I had 28-17, so I think we're pretty close on this one. I agree with you. I talked about that Penn, that Penn State defensive line in the opening segment and how well they played last game against Purdue. I think they're going to be tormenting Nate Stanley just like they tormented Jack Plummer. And I agree with you. Sean Clifford has just continued to look better and better each week that he's started for the Nittany Lions. Don't bet on which back is going to lead in rushing for Penn State because that seems to be something that just fluctuates from week to week and no guy really wants to stand up as the feature back. But I don't think that really matters. I, I really do see Penn State just, just chugging along in this one and getting to 6-0. and In our final game that we're going to be looking at in this segment, uh, we head to SEC country again uh, for Florida at LSU. Uh, Florida held on for the win against Auburn to stay in the top 10 and move up comfortably a few spots in the top 10 to number 7. 
they're taking on a fifth-ranked LSU team uh, that is not going to give them the same sorts of mistakes that a freshman quarterback like Bo Nix did. Um, so I'm wondering, LSU is a 13-point favorite in Death Valley. Um, do you think Florida has any chance of pushing to for a cover there? 13-and-a-half just feels really large for this series. Florida and LSU have played a ton of close games over the years since this kind of became one of the permanent rivalries in the SEC and really been a heated rivalry between these two schools. Obviously, LSU's offense has been the talk of college football so far this year. Joe Burrow's in the thick of the Heisman race. LSU's finally um, evolved into the 21st century on offense um, and made the Tigers a legit contender as it looks. But this is also the best defense LSU's faced by a pretty wide margin so far this year. Florida's defense made a statement last week harassing Bo Nix, forcing him into a lot of mistakes. And obviously Joe Burrow, as a senior quarterback, isn't going to make the same mistakes that Nix made last week. But I think Florida's good enough defensively. I think Dan Mullen's getting enough out of Kyle Trask or Omri Jones, depending on what Florida's going to do. And this isn't your typical LSU defense either. This has been an LSU defense that's been susceptible to giving up big plays, giving up more points than you'd expect. A couple weeks ago, Vanderbilt put 38 points on LSU, which is kind of unheard of, um, at least in this last decade-plus of football in the SEC. So I think 13-and-a-half gives you enough uh, to think that Florida can cover that spread. I don't think the Gators can win this game. I think LSU's uh, the better team. But I think you end up somewhere around the lines of 31-20, 31-21 in favor of LSU. I think the Tigers get the win and stay unbeaten. Uh, but I think Florida's uh, better than Vegas thinks they are in this game. See, I tend to lean with the Sharps in this one. So we're not in agreement on this. I think Burrow has just looked way too good so far this year. And he's the type of veteran presence that's going to know exactly what to do against a defense like Florida. On the other hand, I don't think the Gators can keep up on the scoreboard. LSU has just been dominating and lighting up scoreboards. And I think both Trask and Jones are going to play at quarterback for the Gators. And that ain't a good thing at all. I really see this one... uh, Getting out of hand in the second half, I think Florida might keep it close in the first half, stay within 10 points. But, you know, I see a runaway like 48-28 victory for the Tigers. So, 48 points for LSU in this one. That's wild. Uh, It depends. It depends on what Burrow shows up, right? Because last year in the game, Burrow went to the swamp and was just devastated by Florida's defense. So do we have the Joe Burrow of this season or do we get average Joe from last year that struggled in these kind of big games? See, I think something got knocked into place for him by UCF when they, when they blew him up in the first half of that bowl game last year, up to that point, he was looking garbage in that game and they hit him in the mouth. They knock him out for a few plays, and he comes back and and looks brilliant ever since, straight into this season. So whatever it was that the Knights did, uh, Florida is going to be disappointed in their Sunshine State brethren. So this is certainly this is certainly the game that will decide that whether Joe Burrow's turned the corner or whether he's the same guy, because this is demonstrably the best defense he's faced, and he, if he has a big performance here, I think it's time to really say that Burrow's the real deal and that LSU is a legit national title contender, but I think that's really what will be decided Saturday night. Certainly. Well, in the on the other side of things, like Florida has looked really good defensively, but who have they played who could actually light them up on offense? That's kind of where I'm sitting on that opposite side of the coin with this. So one of us will be right, one of us will be wrong. I'm perfectly okay with that because I'm usually the one who's wrong. Um, we'll talk about that more in our next segment, however. Uh, for now, we're going to take our second quick break. And when we return, we'll be offering up some looks at some garbage that we dealt out last week and giving you some upset picks and locks for the upcoming week. So stay tuned. 
Welcome back for the final segment of the Saturday Blitz podcast this week, everybody. We're going to get right into a new segment that we're offering up here in the podcast. A look at our garbage calls of last week. Now, I'm going to eat some crow right out of the gate because I talked up UCF a lot for our week six picks. Um, I said the Knights were going to beat Cincinnati in a 51-45 thriller. Well, let's just say that John had the spread pegged a lot better than I did as Cincinnati came out 27-24. I think the thing that I probably need to atone for most is what I said about that UCF offense um, and talked about Cincinnati not having faced quite as good an offense as UCF brings to the table. I did throw in the caveat that Ohio State might be as good as the UCF offense, not better. I'm an idiot, everybody. I accept that. (laughs) Um, You know, the Buckeyes were able to get it done against the Bearcats in a way that Dylan Gabriel and the Knights just could not at Nippert. And I'm not about to blame that just on the change in venue since Ohio State got to play Cincinnati at the Horseshoe and uh, UCF had to go on the road. Um, The big thing about this game is, you know, with two losses on their record now, UCF is pretty much out of the group of five race. Even, you know, even with a lot of twists and turns in the American Athletic Conference, it's going to take an awful lot to get out of the East ahead of Cincinnati and Temple this year. And then to get past whichever team gets out of that murderer's row of the AAC West. Uh, with Memphis and SMU and uh, both still undefeated and teams like Tulane and Houston still very much in the mix. Um, also, maybe I should add in there since they had that great win against Air Force. Um, and the other fact being that Boise State just continues to churn along as a top 15 team. So I, I definitely dealt some garbage last week when I when I said that UCF was going to paste half a century on a Bearcats uh, defense that didn't even allow that many points to Ohio State. I mean, I don't want to say that I pegged the score to be exactly the same as it turned out being, but I also don't not want to say that. Um, <laughs> so... Um, uh, I, I did like Cincinnati last week, to be fair, but I had my own share of garbage last week. Um, I was really on board with Auburn, in particular, going in the swamp and, and knocking off the Gators last week enough that I even put a little bit of money on Auburn um, on Saturday's game in the swamp. And, uh, you know, maybe we could call that a reverse jinx. I don't know. Yeah, that's a Crimson Tide fan that put money on Auburn, everybody. So he was really confident in this one. Yeah, that's that's very fair. Uh, I, I call it the reverse jinx. I said, I told my fiance before the game, I was like, look, here's the outcomes. Either Auburn covers the spread and I win money or Auburn loses. I lose money, but I'm happy because Auburn lost the football game. So really we're on a, in a win-win situation here. We call that hedging in the, in the industry. Uh, but I was really confident that Auburn was not just going to win that game, but end up covering the three point spread that it closed at. Uh, really surprised um, in particular because Florida made a lot of mistakes in that game too. You're looking at a Florida offense that turned the ball over three or four times, whatever it ended up being. And Auburn just wasn't really able to take advantage of that. Bo Nix finally really looked like a freshman quarterback. Uh, I am happy that finally people can realize that Auburn was good more in spite of their quarterback play instead of because of their quarterback play. And that's not a knock on Knicks. I don't want to criticize him too much as, you know, a young kid playing in the swamp uh, against a really aggressive Florida defense. But he hasn't been as good as people were trying to tout him up as being as much as the media has kind of said he's been. Auburn's defense had kind of run the show for the Tigers this year. And they really performed well in this game. But they were on the field a whole lot against Florida because they're – their offense really couldn't move the ball against the Gators. And finally, Florida broke through with that 88-yard touchdown that LaMichael P. Ryan, who's in his 
like 11th year at Florida at this point, it feels like, uh, broke through with that long touchdown to put the game away for the Gators. I was very wrong about that. I thought Auburn would would win relatively easily, and the Gators obviously ended up rolling to the 24-13 win. Yeah, they had a different idea for what, what was going to happen in that game for sure. And honestly, I just have to say quickly, um, Oregon fans can tell you that Bo Nix was not that great. Um, just given what the Ducks defense was able to do to him for about 58 minutes. And then again, it's kind of like things, the switch flipped for him just in time. So we're going to swallow crow every week, everybody. It's just what happens when you're picking this many games. Um, but from now on, we're going to actually own up to it a little bit. So, um, shifting back to week seven though, uh, what do you have as the absolute, you know, getting into possibly getting things wrong again? Um, what do you have as the lock of the week this week, John? In a lot of books right now, you can grab Virginia as a pick against Miami right now. Like, if not, then Virginia's favored by a point. Or even some books, Miami's favored as a point. I don't get it. I really don't get it after the way Miami looked last week against Virginia Tech and the way Miami's looked in their first five games of the season. I just don't see the Hurricanes being able to keep pace. My lock of the week is at Virginia, whether it's one point in favor of Miami, whether it's a pick or whether it's one point favorite in Virginia. I think Virginia wins this game by a touchdown or more um, in Coral Gables. I like Bryce Perkins to have a big game against the Miami defense. I like the Virginia defense to really perform well against the the Miami ground game in particular. It'll take a huge game from Nikosi Perry for Miami to have any shot. I think the Cavaliers roll past Miami um, in this game and really take uh, control of the Coastal Division race. I think that's a really great pick, and honestly, I'm going to double down and second that. Um, For me, though, the lock this week... um, is another one that that goes near and dear to my fans' heart. Uh, Vegas has installed Wisconsin as only a 10-point favorite against Michigan State. Um, Take that. I I really think with Jonathan Taylor on the field, um, we saw a good Spartans defense just kind of get taken apart piece by piece by Ohio State last week. And, uh, you know, they had their moments. They definitely did a decent job at times of shutting down the Buckeyes, but they couldn't do it for all four quarters. I don't think the Spartans can stop a guy like Jonathan Taylor for four quarters. He's going to get his yards. He's going to get into the end zone a couple of times. And on the other side of the ball, that Badgers defense is just too good to let Michigan State be able to do much of anything when they have the ball. Brian Lewerke's going to have a really tough time finding open receivers if he can even have the time to go find those receivers because that defensive front for Wisconsin is going to win a majority of the battles at the line of scrimmage against that Michigan State offensive line. Um, I look at this is something similar to what Wisconsin was able to do to the other Michigan school. I could totally see this being another three touchdown victory for the Badgers. Absolutely. I mean, Wisconsin's got one of the best defenses in the country. You're looking at an anemic Michigan state offense. I I'm hundred percent on board with this, with the Badgers rolling past the Spartans this week. And on the other side of things, uh, what do you see being your absolute 100% guaranteed upset of the week? You know, I talked a lot earlier on the podcast about Texas Tech and their ability and then maybe kind of turning the corner with Jet Duffy Duffy at quarterback and really uh, looking like a quality football team that could really compete for not just bowl eligibility, but maybe seven, eight wins this year. They go to Baylor this week to take on undefeated Baylor squad. And I think Texas Tech might not just cover the nine and a half, ten point spread, depending on where you look. I think they got a shot at really pulling the upset with the way their defense in particular has played. Like I said earlier, Jordan Brooks has been fantastic. This looks like a very different Red Raiders defense than we've seen in recent years. I think Duffy's the real deal. If he can take care of the football in this game, 
I think Texas Tech has a real shot at not just covering the 10-point spread, but pulling an upset in Waco against Baylor. I could totally see that happening. And just all around, both of these teams have been a lot more tenacious on defense than they ha- you know, than you would expect from Big 12 outfits. So I could even see this being a nice low-scoring game just all around. Um, some frustrated offenses there in Waco. Um, I headed to American Athletic Conference country for my upset pick this week. Um, number 23 Memphis is going to Philadelphia to play Temple, and the Owls have just been absolutely lights out on their home field. They have gotten the job done already against two Power 5 opponents. Admittedly, not great Power 5 opponents, but they did get the job done. They have two statement wins there out of conference. Um... Temple has won eight straight, dating back to last year at home, and with the second best red zone defense in the country behind only Florida, I think they're going to get some stops on the Tigers. Um, I don't know that Temple's going to win this game outright. I think they have a very good shot to do so and um, push their way into the conversation again right there alongside Cincinnati in the East. Um, but one way or another, this is going to be a three-point decision. I think five points is probably too much to be giving to Memphis there on the road, even though they are undefeated. And I think Kenneth Gainwell is going to be frustrated against this Owls defense. He's going to, you know, maybe chug for triple digits, but it's going to take him a lot of carries to get there. Yeah, I mean, Temple's definitely a different team at home versus where they're on the road, and I think it would fit the the thing we've talked about all season with the American Athletic Conference being just so good top to bottom, uh, and there being several quality teams like the Owls that have a really good shot. So it would definitely throw the group of five race into some chaos. Yeah, indeed. Shifting gears for our last few minutes here in the podcast – as we always like to do each week, uh, we tailgaters. Um, let's talk a bit about what we're eating and drinking this week. Uh, what do you have on tap, John? You know, I've I've really been kind of hitting on what you said a few weeks ago about kind of making something in a crock pot that's been something you can munch on all day and kind of just sit there and eat. So, uh, eating wise, I'm gonna make some I'm gonna make some uh, pulled chicken tacos. So I'm going to throw some chicken in the crock pot, throw some nice seasoning on them and throw them in there and then pull them apart um, and make and make some tacos this weekend. That's what I'm really feeling uh, for this game. Something that, again, can sit there pretty much all day and you can make as many tacos throughout the day as you want. So that's really, really what I'm feeling uh, to eat this week. What do you what do you got on tap? I was going to say that sounds great. That's very similar to the enchilada chicken that I made a couple of weeks ago. Um, for me, my wife is out of town, and I'll probably be sitting here in my uh, basement office watching uh, multiple televisions all day long and just being a glutton. And when I want to be a glutton, a uh, few things are better than waffles. Um, but specifically, uh, you know, chicken and waffles is a great old staple, get that sweet and salty. I like to put a little twist on it, though. I like chicken in waffles. So what I like to do is, uh, you know, get a couple of chicken breasts, get a couple of thighs, cut them up, and, uh, you know, make some homemade popcorn chicken. So get this all breaded and fried, get a little bit of spicy into it, then put those pieces right in your waffle iron, pour the batter around it, cook it up, and you've got the chicken right there in the waffles. Makes it all the, you know, for somebody that spends all day writing um, churning out articles for Saturday Blitz. Uh, you don't want to get too messy. And, you know, traditionally fried chicken is, you know, you're going to get some greasy fingers. When you cook it down and you actually put it into the waffle, you get all the flavor of it without any of that mess. So that's what I'm going to be doing on Saturday and probably eating that for breakfast, lunch, and dinner. <laughs> yeah. I think I, that's the best thing, right, is to make something you can eat regardless of the hour of the day uh, that really fits. In terms of drinking, um, 
I, I usually like to at least get it relatively close to where Alabama is going to be playing, for instance. So Alabama is going to College Station. So one of the big beers of Texas is Shiner oh, yeah. uh, in Shiner, Texas. So Shiner Bach, I was going to get um, a six or a 12 pack bottled Shiner Bach and hit this weekend. Very good uh, dark lager. Uh, it's distributed everywhere around the country, but uh, you know, obviously uh, a more well-known beer, but also a pretty good beer, uh, especially this time of the year while the weather's starting to get that little bit of chill in it. I definitely drank a ton of Shiner Bach when I lived in Corpus Christi for a few misguided months, um, but man, <laughs> great beer. So at least there was a redeeming factor for living in Texas for a little while for me. Um, I'm going to keep it close to home here as well. I've really been enjoying the past couple weeks going out and filling up growlers and trying out the different brew pubs here in, in Happy Valley. Um, and so I'm going to go over to Happy Valley Brewing. Uh, they have a tailgater pale ale that I think is going to be really nice for washing back the sweet and salty of some chicken and waffles. Um, not too heavy. It's about 4.7 or 4.8 by volume. So, you know, you're not going to get too blitzed right away off of one or two. And you can keep, you know, you can keep sipping throughout the day. And uh, so, yeah, I, I've really been enjoying keeping it local. And I think I'm going to keep that trend going for another week. Yeah, I mean, finding a good... Um something finding something good to eat and finding a good beer to sip throughout the day is kind of perfect for a full day's worth of a really impressive Saturday slate maybe the probably the best Saturday slate we've had all year oh yeah undoubtedly I and that said we're probably going to get a bunch of blowouts and duds now that we've said that um because that seems to be the way the college football gods turn when you think you've got it best they're going to uh cut you back down to size on that note, thanks again for tuning in, everybody. It's always a pleasure getting to talk with you guys, you know, week after week. Um, as we approach the midway point of this season, we'll be coming at you every Wednesday, just to keep that in mind, offering up our picks for better or worse, and letting you know where we messed up the previous week. Um, but we'll be here, so we hope to hear... to. Be talking to you guys again in the upcoming weeks, moving through October and November, before we get to college football playoff time. On that note, have a wonderful rest of your week. Happy Week 7, everybody, and we'll catch you next Wednesday.